Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Zandra Moore, the co-founder and CEO of Pan Intelligence, a white-labeled business intelligence and predictive analytics solution for SaaS companies. Zandra and her two co-founders acquired the product they were building at their old company and spun it into a new startup. They literally packed up and carried a server across a car park to their new office. To get started, they got a list of 500 companies from Dun & Bradstreet and sent each one a handwritten letter in the mail. It wasn't scalable, but it helped them land customers. Since then, their startup has grown into a multiple seven-figure SaaS business with over 50 employees. They're disrupting the SaaS analytics sector and competing against giants like Power BI and Tableau, and they're doing this all from a city in the north of England. In this interview, we discuss how they leverage LinkedIn and content marketing to reach their ideal customers, how they've used high-touch and personalized cold outreach to get high response rates, how they're able to follow up with leads at least 12 times without being annoying, what they've learned so far about how to focus on a very broad market opportunity and how they're differentiating and competing against some huge competitors. So I hope you enjoy it. Zandra, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Do you have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates you or, or gets you out of bed that you can share with us? <laughs> um, I've used this one a bit. And it's, it's, not, it's two words as opposed to a quote. It's uh, give us gain. And a mother who is very much glass half full and always felt that the best way to make things happen for yourself is to give before expecting to, to receive from others. And it's amazing how much people sort of come back to you and find you again in life. So yeah, that would be mine. Nice, nice and simple. So tell us about Pan Intelligence. What does the product do? Who's it for? And what's the main problem you're helping to solve? So thank you. Yeah, my Pan Intelligence is a software business. Um, we develop a business intelligence analytics solution that is designed to be embedded and white labeled by SaaS vendors. So we're a bit like a, a looker when it comes to data visualization. So allowing people to easily build their own uh, data insights in a, in a visual way. They can drill in, slice and dice, but they can also build things like uh, reporting. So think of a formatted report like a crystal report or an SSRS that they can schedule and distribute to lots of different people and brand as their own. And then lastly, you can also build machine learning models. So build a model that can predict outcomes. So new data comes in, it can score that data and, and, and make a prediction and give people that insight so they can make a decision on what they'd like to do or if you wish, automate it. So we sort of say it's a three-in-one thing. So, you know, data visualization, reporting and machine learning in one technology, in one tool that is purely designed to be white labeled and embedded by SaaS vendors who usually are getting to a point in their roadmap where they've built some kind of custom basic kind of reporting and dashboarding, but their customers are asking for more customizable access to, to that data. And they want to build that into their platform and they choose to work with us and, and embed our technology as opposed to continuing to extend and build that functionality out. So that's what we do. So what type of SaaS companies are using Pan Intelligence? Can you maybe give us a, one or two examples? 
Yeah, so um, we we work across a whole range of sectors because it's not specifically about a sector, but we we have a lot of experience in fintech more because that's the sector we spun out of. We were originally part of a banking software vendor ten years ago, and as a small team, we decided to spin this technology out. We built it for for the banking platform as an alongside solution, and we spun it out in twenty fourteen. And so we've done quite a lot in payments, um, online banking, e-commerce, retail, uh, and also Marcoms, you know, people like Lead Forensics, for example, uh, through to point of sale platforms. So uh, we have companies like Book in, in Holland, um, and then we'll have ACI Worldwide, global payments provider. So, yeah, but a, a range of sectors are also in education and healthcare. We have seven and a half thousand schools using it through RM, CMIS. 80 colleges through tribal um, and then into the healthcare sector where we're used in GP practices for predicting patients that might most likely not to attend an appointment or even predicting scans that might fail in primary care hospitals when it comes to things like radiology. I mean, the application is wide ranging. So we have about 450 technology companies and licenses with companies that use it to, to really expand that kind of access to data for their customers. So always sort of embedded in their platforms and white labeled. Uh, but like I say, lots of different sectors real range. Okay, yeah, we, we need to get into that because, you know, my head is already exploding thinking about all the different markets and just some of the examples that you just gave now. And then we're talking about, okay, let's, you know, you you launch a SaaS business and you're focused and you have a clear target audience. And, and um, you know, whenever I hear any founders saying, yeah, you know, my, my product is for everybody. It's like, yeah, not really, right? It's like, who, who, who do you really need to answer? <laughs> right. but, but it sounds like that that might actually apply to, to patent intelligence. So I want to dig into that. So I want to kind of go back in time and talk about how you came up with the idea where this, this product started. So like, where did the idea come from? So uh, I can't take any credit. I'll have to be really... Uh, honest here is uh, I've got two co-founders, uh, a guy called uh, Ken Miller, who's CTO, and Mike Cripps, who was the then FD of the business that we were part of, a company called Pancredit. And Pancredit was founded by a guy called Peter Constance, who actually became a seed investor when we spun uh, the company out in 2014. So just, uh, just just in terminology, when you say FD, you're just talking about a CFO, right? I am a CFO, apologies. Yep. Yeah, CFO. So, yeah, so we were building this because we were using a tool called Business Objects at the time, which was acquired by SAP. And we found that we were having to build more around the things that Business Objects didn't do than it did do in order for it to kind of enable our customers that were the big banks and financial intermediaries here in the UK to consume data. And so Ken being the guy Ken is said, hey, I can build this. He'd been working with Business Objects for years and he started building Pan Intelligence and I was working with him to help take that product to the customers that we had and um, Pancredit, but also taking it out to the wider market, to other SaaS vendors or the software vendors, because we were a software business ourselves and we built everything we needed to that mattered to a software vendor around things like security, multi-tenancy, authentication, embedding, white labeling, the stuff that kind of other tools didn't start from the ground up with and we had to. So we were a really small team, sort of this alongside product where the, the thing we were selling was multi-million pound lending systems and we were this kind of add-on afterthought dashboarding technology and we saw an opportunity to kind of take that to a wider market the market we had was quite narrow it was very just very much banks in the uk 
So, yeah, so we, we spun that out because we saw that actually the bigger market opportunity wasn't the banks, but actually other software vendors because we, we were different. We were different. We weren't moving data like other tools like Tableau, Looker. They all move data. We, we don't. We can query high volume transactional databases and, you know, a lot of software vendors want to keep their data where it is, but want to enable their customers to kind of do more with it. So that's the origination really of us. And we've really stuck to that strategy of selling into software vendors ever since 2014. But we have, you're right, had to refine that ideal customer profile down. In fact, we thought it was pretty narrow when we picked software vendors. And actually what we realized was that wasn't narrow enough. So we've really, really uh, gone on a journey using a framework, crossing the chasm framework, which is very popular for that kind of getting to a place we've got a really repeatable proposition that you can really kind of command a a target segment or a SAM. And uh, we decided to work with SaaS vendors on AWS to start with across four core segments. So where we had referenceability, so fintech, retail tech, martech, and uh, and edtech is where we've we've ended up putting a lot of our focus and energy to to really kind of get deeper into those markets. So yeah, whilst we're we're in lots of different markets, we are we are specializing in some because we feel that that's a better way for us to really accelerate. Got it. Okay. So I want to just explain this a little bit more about what you meant by, you know, we kind of spun this out. So what does that actually mean? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so we built a basic product, but actually it was built using, I mean, it makes, I think, anybody cringe. It was built in Flash originally, which is obviously, you know, uh, you know, talk about technical debt. So we, we we spun out this product knowing we had to completely rebuild it. But we had a few customers and I'm, I'm there for some revenue and a very, very small team, like one developer, Ken, myself, um, the other co-founder, the, the CFO, Mike, and and one other person. So you know, we were a tiny, tiny team and we just thought we've got to rebuild this, but we're never going to rebuild it inside this fintech because they just were never going to prioritize the development of it. It was, it was like I say, it was a very small part of their, their proposition. So yeah, so we, we, we basically carried a server across a car park and squatted in the, um, in a, in an office that's half the size of our current boardroom now, all five of us, um, and just kind of working it out everything, you know, from, banking to to you know i mean we were paying ourselves for the first three months in fact it was our cfo mike that that bankrolled the majority of us for the first three months whilst we were getting everything up and running but we all you know emptied our bank accounts to buy the ip and then had to try and work out how to pay ourselves for a little while but it was good it was, it was good because it was it was basically a startup with a with a bit of tech that had all the right principles and foundations of the core product but needed rewriting which we did and it's completely rewritten so it's all in the latest tech. Okay, great. So you, you you carried the server across the car park. I love just <laughs> that picture in my head. And you said you you already had a few customers using the product. What did those first three months look like in in terms of growth? Like, w- w- what were you doing to find new customers? We'd had the benefit of being in another company, so we'd had access to all their marketing and their customers and everything else. And obviously, when you're suddenly on your own in office with a, a whiteboard that's blank, with no pipeline on it, it really was, right, if we're going after software vendors, we need to go on a list somewhere, print off a list of all of the software vendors. And um, I mean, we had an, a bit of this pre-thinking before we bought the business, but it did feel like this in the first six months. Then we used Dun & Bradstreet. We printed off a list of software vendors in the UK. Um, 
and we literally wrote them letters. I mean, we really were putting, you know, stamps on envelopes and writing to people. In fact, I was running the Institute of Directors, Young Directors Forum, which I'd set up here in Leeds. And I'd been working on a mentoring program with a guy who'd moved to ACI Worldwide, who I mentioned earlier. And I just reached out and went, hey, they're on my list. I'll just find out if he's happy to have a, a, an introduction call with us. And actually that ended up being one of our first customers. It was a really big win for, for the business. And the same with Tribal, who are a very early software partner of ours. You know, they It was all through connections and networks, people that I knew or we knew, I, you know, one of them, we literally took them fish and chips opposite the road because we were literally behind a big fish and chip shop in Yorkshire, unsurprising. And we just said, look, will you come and have a meeting with us and we'll take you for fish and chips. And I, know, I remember Ken doing a demo to him over fish and chips, which was oh brilliant. God. So, but yeah, it was, you know, hustling really and uh, using the networks that we built up over the years. What, why, why send letters? Like, why not just use email like everybody else? <laughs> Do you know it's about getting attention in a noisy market? At the time, email marketing was felt really noisy. I think everything goes through waves, and people were were just not sending letters. And I always knew that if I received a letter, especially with a handwritten envelope, I, it would be the one I opened first. And I sort of observed myself doing it, and I thought, you know, why not? If we're going to try and get people's attention, let's handwrite the envelope, let's hand sign some letters, and let's personalise each letter. You know, here's a list of. 500 software vendors, surely it's worth our time. And that's what we did. And and it did get people's attention. And then you picked up the phone, rang people, say, hey, did you get my letter? And they go, I did actually. And I do remember it. And yeah, for a small company with, you know, with not not any budget, frankly, at the time, because, you know, we'd not raised any funds. We, we were sort of bootstrapped. That was, and it worked. It worked really well. It was really simple. And obviously we've built a much more sophisticated marketing engine now, but do you know, we, I still go back to, I, I, I listened to a podcast over the weekend. I really loved what the CEO said about, you know, Gen Z and the change in kind of behaviors in e-commerce and around how they buy and how they're switching off from Amazon. And I just thought what he said was really good. I have a Gen Z daughter and I just dropped him a note on LinkedIn, you know, commenting on what he said. And he must've looked at my profile, looked at what we did, replied and just went, do you know what we're looking for? What you guys do? I want you to meet with my VP of product. And that's like a virtual letter, really, isn't it? Same same. Really. Yeah, yeah. What were you writing in these letters? What were you saying? I was always commenting on something that related to news about that business. So I'd find, I'd do some research on the company, find out if they'd recently acquired a business or made an announcement or raised funds or if the person I was writing to was new in post and I, I knew where they'd come from. So just personalization, really, relating to something that was either relevant to the business or the individual. In fact, it was how I started working with Pan Credit originally, um, was I, I, I wrote a, an in-mail to, or it wasn't in-mail then, in-mail didn't exist. I think it was just a, an invite to the CEO, Peter, because I sat on the trustees. I was a trustee for Leeds Rugby Foundation, which is obviously a, a rugby team here in Leeds. And, you know, I, I, I sat on that board and they also sponsored one of the players. And I just used that as a connection to say, you know, if you sponsor one of the players, I sit on the trustees. You know, yeah, I'd love to come and have a chat to you about how I can work with, with your business. And yeah, that's how I started there. So it's amazing if you personalize things and just put a little bit of time into things. It goes a long way. So a couple of things there. Number one is uh, I think that's a brilliant just idea there that it, it doesn't have to be writing letters it's just i think the lesson there is you figured out if we just do what everybody else is doing we're going to get lost in the noise so what can we do 
what would I pay attention to? And let's try that. The other reluctance I think people might have is, it's just like, you know, these days, you know, sending 500 emails, if you try, you know, and anyone can kind of do those outreach tools and upload a list of 500 emails and send them the same email. But to actually personalize an email takes enough effort. But then if you have to write it on paper, stick a stamp on and everything. So what would you say to somebody who, who looks at it and says, yeah, that's great, but it, it's not a scalable thing and it just takes too much time to do? Uh, do you know, it, it isn't scalable and we don't do it anymore, right? That's where we started. But I think if you're in an early stage business and you want to stand out, definitely do the things everyone else isn't doing. And if that takes you a little bit more time, and the great thing is it didn't cost us a lot. <laughs> some paper and some stamps and a bit of time. And we, we, we sort of had the time um, in those early stages to get everything off the ground. So I, yeah, it's not scalable, um, but I think personalization can be, and there's lots of, you know, automation is a given, right? There's loads of tools for automation, but, you know, I mentioned Lead Forensics, one of our customers, you know, they've got a platform called Webio, which we're embedded in, and that's about personalizing people's landing page experiences when they go on the website. So it says, you know, hey, welcome back. It's got your name, it's got your company. It knows what you've looked at before, and it's personalizing your experience based on that that last time you were there. So I think, you know, there are lots of things around personalization and, and technologies you can use to enable you. But I think the principle is people pay attention to stuff that's clearly tailored for them. Um, and it's worth the effort. I think conversions, in my experience, are always much higher. Yeah, yeah, love that. So let, let's talk about figuring out who that target customer was. Because I know that, I mean, as as we just talked about earlier, it potentially is very, very broad and it covers lots of different types of businesses and, and, and industries. How did you go about dealing with that? Because you said you, you started off with this this list of like 500, but then as we were talking earlier before we started recording, you sort of went in a bunch of different directions after that, right? We did, right. So we we, we started to get drawn into business that maybe we w- we certainly wouldn't necessarily do now, but at the time when we were hunting after those software vendors, you know, something would come up, a reseller would approach us and say, hey, you know, we'd like to do pan intelligence for this product, but we don't own the IP. And they would need a lot of support, sales enablement. They didn't have technical people in their organizations and they just needed a huge amount of time from us. And we weren't geared up as much for that. And we did build a reseller channel around Sage and we still run that today. But again, it's not a core focus for us because managing a reseller channel is very different to to having the direct relationship with the software vendor that's putting it inside their product and making that product available to their customers because they're much more invested in it. A reseller isn't. A reseller is, you know, a sales transaction for them. Their level of investment in that is is not as high and and they don't have the te- technical capabilities. So, you know, reseller channels, we, we still have some of that and we still work with that, but, it, but again, it's very different and you need to have a different kind of structure and way to service and support support resellers. And then we, we also picked up customers in segments where we had to do some bespoke configuration around the product, which still far, forms part of our code. We have a single code base, but even at the time when we were doing that, we sort of like, mm, this is probably taking our product in a direction that we, we don't really think is useful to everybody. And we wouldn't do that now. We would, we would be much more kind of, we would be more confident to say, you know, this isn't really going to work for everyone and, and it is not the, not the right direction of travel for the product and say no. But I think that's, I think every software business sort of goes through some of those, you know, go to market, you know, channels, marketplaces we tried. 
didn't really work for us again. Uh, we didn't have the brand and you need to be quite a big, a bigger player for people like Salesforce and others to really um, position you and, and, and also market you. And we tried that and probably invested in an area which we, we pulled away from because we realized we, we were not committed enough to marketplace partnerships at the time. And we weren't of a size where we could really do it justice. Whereas now we're sort of considering alliances uh, because we're getting to that stage in our business, whereas it wasn't right for us earlier on. Does that all make sense, Omer? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, and so in the early days, were you were you just targeting customers in, in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. We were predominantly UK focused. We did have software businesses in Australia and a few in Europe uh, and a couple in America, but the majority of the software businesses were in the UK. That 500 list was was software businesses in the UK. And then when we closed our Series A round, you know, we'd, we'd already opened an office in Boston. We were already starting to win and attract more business in the US because we'd started to refine our ICP to to cloud. Uh, we, we got on the AWS marketplace and we started to focus much more on targeting cloud vendors. And then when the pandemic hit and the, the, the acceleration of, uh, of move to SaaS, we, we completely moved all of our like go-to-market activities just onto SaaS vendors um, on private clouds, uh, public clouds, should I say, not private clouds, on AWS, Azure and GCP. But yeah, we've kind of narrowed, ironically, as we've grown, our, our, we've narrowed we narrowed our go-to-market um, because our addressable markets, like you say, so big, it could be any sector, any software platform. Yeah, yeah. So I want to kind of continue down that thread and, and the couple of um, channels that you've used successfully, one has been just content marketing and the other is how you've used LinkedIn and so I want to spend a little bit of time just digging into those but I think the same challenges apply in terms of whether you're creating content or you're using a platform like LinkedIn how do you get a message out there that attracts the attention of your ideal customer when potentially your ideal customer is every type of business that's doing something like this. So tell me a little bit about like, let's maybe, maybe let's start with LinkedIn. So how has that worked for you? What have you been doing on, on that platform? Well, LinkedIn's been a, a sort of evolving channel for us. It started with us just using it to find the name of somebody in an organization so that we could then pick up the phone to them or put them into a, our database and we wanted to reach out to so, you know, right in the early days, it was, it was more like a yellow pages. I used to say, God, if I'd had this in my first job when I was given a, a yellow pages and a mobile phone, basically a phone directory and a phone, and that was it, and a Rolodex, this would have been awesome. So I, I was, I've was i always been amazed at just the wealth of information that is in LinkedIn for, for you to be able to understand the person that you're, you're trying to engage with. So really, it, it felt like a, a, you know, a glorified phone directory. And then, you know, with things like Sales Navigator and using it much more to kind of collect groups of people that you're wanting to speak to and track those conversations and that, that outreach. They used something called Point Drive, which they got rid of, but we used it quite a lot. And Point Drive enabled you to see if somebody had clicked on some content that you had created. We used like almost like PowerPoints, tailored PowerPoints for people, a bit like those tailored letters, personalized PowerPoints, if you imagine which we would send to people and they we'd know if they'd looked at it, but it would really speak to them and and what they were trying to do. And then we've moved on to using, you know, paid ads on LinkedIn. But again, knowing that persona. Um, so for us, our persona is a chief product officer, VP of product, or um, a CTO or a founder of a SaaS business. And their pain points and problems is they want to be successful in market with a product that can compete and 
they want to make sure they've got functionality that is leading edge and things like data visualization, reporting and machine learning can take a long time to build out and they're making prioritization decisions about where their dev resources go. So therefore we can accelerate their roadmap, help them to be competitive in market with their product very quickly. But also we generate expansion revenues because most of the time people will enhance their subscription for that SaaS platform in order to have self-service capabilities for accessing data and building their own reports and charts or even prediction capabilities. So we can be a a really fast path to expansion revenue. So we know that our persona, we know that the people that are worrying about products and how they deal with their product priorities and also the CEOs and founders that are thinking about growth and expansion and retention. And, and we really can, we can talk to those, those people um, and understand because that's all we do. And we just make sure that our ads and our content and the things that we surface through things like LinkedIn, right the way back to if we were just sending them an invite, we personalize it. If they're a CPO, we talk about their roadmap. If it was a CEO, we talk about kind of, expansion revenues and, and um, you know, improving retention yeah okay so with with the with the LinkedIn ads what does that funnel look like so you're running these different ad campaigns targeting your your ideal customer profile once people click on that are they they're getting sent to some sort of landing page is are you trying to drive people to request a demo what's what's that look like once they actually engage with an ad so i think we must have anyone time about five or six ads running minimum some are ebooks guides so they're downloading a kind of thought leadership type piece so it might be a five-page document on you know the lessons learned in embedded analytics or the five mistakes or the you know those sorts of things i imagine there's there's the roi of embedded analytics so we've got a number of papers that 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 we present and, and people click to download and then we'll, we'll, we'll capture and follow up. Or they might be more kind of case study type content pieces, which are a bit more kind of information, but sector relevant. So because we've got our ICP and cohorts and we know what segment they're in, we make sure we're presenting them kind of stories about people we're working with in a segment that they, that, that, that is theirs and, and therefore is, is, they can relate to. And again, you know, we can, we can track that engagement and see the the clicks on on those ads so that's how it works essentially okay so once once they let's say they download some type of thought leadership content what happens next how do you do the follow up yeah so we have a, an sdr function they basically are following up all of our channels of engagement so paid ad engagement we use other kind of tools for automation so pardot or email automation, which uh, is obviously a Salesforce product. And we take intent data from things like G2. So we can see, you know, that an IP particular company is looking at solutions like us. And therefore we, we then, you know, find the personas that, that relate to that company and, and, and surface content to them. So intent data can be really useful. And our, and we use, um, you know, an SDR sequencing tool called Apollo.io which enables them to do some callback and follow-up. And it's really great for, for SDR sort of outreach and, and helping to manage that team to manage kind of follow-up and continuous follow-up. We, we have this rule that if you've not reached out 12 times, then you've not reached out enough. And, and true enough, you know, when you, whether it's you're picking up the phone, you're sending them an email, you're connecting to them via a social channel, you just try 12 times and, and you know, patient persistence and, and not 
not badgering people with emails, but using a mix of different channels to try and reach someone and say, hey, look, we're here and we'd love to chat. And um, it's amazing how many people kind of go, yeah, I've been listening and I can see and I'm ready now. Um, they don't seem to be, my experience is people are not bothered if you're doing that in a kind of respectful and, you know, a, a, a frequency that is, it feels like it's it's comfortable for people. So, you know, once every month would be too far, you know, too far apart, but, you know, once once every week or so, and, and I think we can get it. And then how, how do you do that? Like, I know some people listening to this are going to be thinking, oh my God, 12 times, that would be, I would just be annoying the hell out of people. I'm going to get it rude emails telling <laughs> me to, you know, go and do this. What's your advice on how to be persistent with the follow-up, but to do that in a non-annoying way? Personalization. People want to feel that this is not always don't do everything through automation automation the, the 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 risk of relying too much on everything being automated in sequences is that it will feel like they're just in a pot and it's not for them and then they'll stop listening and they won't read it so that energy is wasted so the way we use the tools and the team is that once we've got somebody that we believe has had a certain number of engagements, kind of must be looking around, they've downloaded this document, they've been on the website, they may have opened an email, right? Got a few touch points. They then get a, a score, an ICP score, and we go, yeah, they're, they're, they're somebody we want the SDR team to then use a number of different touch points to try and open that door and have that conversation with them. And some people, it's first touch point, right? They've downloaded something, you pick up the phone, like, hey, yeah, it's been a really useful document, let's have a call. And others, it needs a bit more kind of patience, persistence. So we don't jump on everybody. We just make sure that we've got people that clearly look like they're engaged and interested and we just uh, patiently keep going at it. I think we just don't rely too heavily on automations to do that. We, we take a bit more of a personalized approach. So what would that personalization look like when we're not talking about replace first name right like <laughs> <laughs> no so again we, we you know our sdr team would look at their we create linkedin and crunchbase and all these amazing resources can tell you a huge amount about a company its ownership people's interests are you know available on all their social media channels so if you take a few minutes especially if you know they're a target customer you know they're in your sweet spot they're an ideal customer profile they're absolutely right fit for you. They're worth the time to just do a little bit of research on that person that you know is the right persona for you to target, to just personalize and look for something that that makes that, that, that outreach um, feel tailored to them because it will be tailored to them and they're more likely to pay attention to it. And I'm not talking, you know, hours of work. It's a quick scan or they've just commented on this article. I'll make reference or they've just posted this blog that they've talked about or they've it says on their Twitter feed that they, you know, that I coach a girls' football team. So if I see somebody coaches girls' football, it's one of the first things I comment on. Common ground, it, it opens the conversation. So, yeah, that might seem like hard work, but if you know you've got your ideal customer profile right, and you know you've got your target audience right, and you know you've got the persona that is going to be the people you need to speak to, then it's worth the effort. I think. Not spray and pray, I would suggest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, that approach seems to be working. Like the business has grown to what, a team of over 50 people now. That's right. Yeah. And how many customers? Uh, so we've got 450 and, and growing. We, we sort of bring in, you know, two or three new logos a month and that, that's going up all the time. So it's, you know, and these are mid-market enterprise size deals, if that makes sense, on a monthly basis. 
And because it's embedded and white labeled, it's it's quite sticky. So, you know, churn is low. And because this is not pure play SaaS, you know, it's not spin something up for 30 days and then switch it on £50 a month, $50 a month, because this is a long-term kind of embedded relationship with a software vendor, that account-based marketing approach, that more personalized approach, that really tailored kind of ideal customer profile, you can do that when you've got a sort of higher, like, you know, we've got a long, longer lifetime value, which we have because of the, the type of sale that it is. And it's more, like I say, sort of mid-enterprise mid to enterprise value. And yeah, you, you're, you're not talking about signing up 200 companies a month. Yeah. And, and how, do, how do you sell it? Is it just like annual deals or multi-year deals? Is that? Yeah. So it's multi-year deals usually, although we do have people sign up annually and it's monthly revenue and it's tied to their unit metrics. So if we back the right SaaS vendors, if we work with the right companies that are on a great growth trajectory. So we have some key characteristics, you know, we're looking for people that, you know, companies that are on not late stage can be relatively early stage SaaS vendors actually, but they've, they've got a, a great sweet spot in the market and they're growing. Um, we tie to their unit metrics. So it's, um, you know, it's a usage model, unit based model as they grow, we grow. So that's great. So it's good for them and good for us. All right. And, uh, where are you in terms of revenue right now? So probably don't want to disclose too much. We're, we're seven figures on ARR. Um, we closed our Series A round in 2019 at the end of the year, just before we went into lockdown in 2020. And we raised six million US dollars, and that's sort of funding our, our sort of growth and expansion at the moment. But yeah, um, good good growth trajectory. Um, it's probably as much as I'll say. <laughs> Fair enough. And and what what does the sales cycle look like? Because I mean, you mentioned that you know once this that the, the technology is embedded in to their product. Uh, it's not something that they just, you know, going to wake up one morning and say, yeah, I'll try something else. So that that has some advantages around churn. But I also kind of feel like, does that make the sales cycle longer because people have to go through a whole bunch of due diligence before they're willing to commit to doing the work and integrating with you? Yeah, I think the um, time to close for us at the moment is about 150 days, which it's about right for uh, a cycle of doing a proof of concept and then doing an initial kind of configuration and pilot before going live with, with your customers. So there is an element of their technical teams wanting to get their hands on the product. We deploy inside their VPC. So they actually get their hands on our technology and deploy it into their platform. So it's not sort of set outside their infrastructure, it's sat inside their infrastructure and they want to test that kind of integration, embedding, authenticating users and and also you know connecting it to whatever data sets that they've got as well as configuring usually a, a small library of charts and reports that are out of the box for their customers which tends to be the case and it may take them you know 100 days from initially getting their hands on the software to get to that point where they they've done that to their own satisfaction it's not really something that's a limitation of us or our product it's more about their time and resource uh, um, to do that more than anything else um, but yeah, you can deploy us and, and spin us up and connect us to databases and build all of these things out in a matter of a couple of days. But we're usually dependent on on the processes they need to go through internally and their own release cycles as well. Uh, if they if they have you know longer release release cycles, that can have an impact. And, and now I assume your customers are are global, more US based companies as well. Yeah, they are um, increasingly US based, which is great. But global, we we have quite a few in mainland Europe, 
less so in Asia Pacific, but we're seeing a lot of interest from Israel and Israeli businesses right now. Um, there's a you know huge kind of SaaS ecosystem there. I think they've had more IPOs in the last 12 months than anywhere else. So, you know, we do get drawn into certain markets as opposed to, you know, targeting them directly. But yeah, the pipeline is, is absolutely international for us. So one of the things that really stood out for me when, when I was doing research for this interview was, you know, you've, you've got a product that is, you know, basically competing with sort of Silicon Valley type, you know, alternative offerings. And you, you've got a customer base, which is growing in the US. And then you're running a company based in Yorkshire, in Leeds, which isn't exactly, you know, known for being a, a tech hub. And then also the other thing about you in, in terms of, you know, you, you being a mother of two and you started the business. Is it true you started the business initially? Like I read something about like you wanted to kind of start working, but you, you kind of wanted to do something remotely. Like what was the deal with that? Yeah. So I, I had a, a business before this, which was a, um, it was a consultancy business, which I think is probably what you've read. <laughs> so I had a, a sales consultancy business to software vendors where I was helping them kind of launch their products to market and get their kind of go to market propositions and their solutions and win those first customers. Um, and the reason I set that business up was because I was a sales director for a software company. I had been sort of working for a number of different software businesses in my career and I'd had two children and it was really difficult to maintain a kind of the travel and the demands of a sales director role in a team with two young children at preschool age. Um, oh, so I just yeah. thought, you know, I don't want to stop doing what I love doing, which is working in the kind of software sales. But I want to enable earlier stage companies that you know can't afford to have a full time sales director, but would love to have somebody, you know, a few hours a week or a day a week to, to help them kind of get off the ground. And that really worked for me because I could fit that around my kind of child care arrangements and I made it sort of more localized to me. So I, I focused on working with SaaS businesses in, in the North of England, as opposed to having to travel as widely as I had done in my career. So that helped and, and helped me to kind of strike a balance, but keep my hand in really to working with, and it was all SaaS businesses, early stage SaaS startups that I worked with and Pan Credit, which was the, the foundation for Pan Intelligence was, was one of those clients. So I, you know, I, I kind of, I say cheekily reached out to the, the CEO and said, hey, can I come and work for you? Actually, I put a pin in a map and drew a circle and said, I want to work with businesses within this circle. And Pan Credit was in it. And it was uh, two miles from my house, two miles from my house, literally two miles. So I knew I could I could be <laughs> dashed back to nursery and, and get the kids if I needed to, um, if they were poorly or anything else. So, And you know, it's amazing how many software businesses uh, within a 10-mile circle of your house when you start to look. <laughs> it's quite unbelievable, really. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> All right. So being in Leeds, how has that been made things harder to compete with Silicon Valley type companies or has it helped because you're different to, you know, your competitors? Like, how's that played out? So I've always uh, lived in the, the Yorkshire bubble that, that believes that Yorkshire is the best place on the planet. And uh, I've <laughs> come from many generations living in Yorkshire. And whilst I've traveled the world, I believe that, you know, we can do anything in the city, in Leeds in particular. And I still believe that. But I think becoming a, a founder and scaling a, um, a, a SaaS business has made me realize just how much we do lack some of the kind of expertise of being in an ecosystem like 
Silicon Valley, for example, where there is just so many people that have been on that journey, have learned the lessons, understand the kind of new rules, uh, the playbooks and everything else. And having that sort of access to advice and support and guidance at your fingertips, I think it'd be a real enabler if you're kind of on that journey for the first time. And we don't have a huge amount of that here in Leeds. We're building an ecosystem here. And I, you know, I'm, I'm gathering up all of the CEOs I can find in software and SaaS on my doorstep to make sure that we're leaning on each other and helping each other out. But you know, we're not Silicon Valley. And I think we're a long way off being that. And I think that's just being really honest. And I think there's more happening in London than there is in Leeds, but it's growing here. And I think we're just at the early stages of really seeing a kind of explosion of, of, of tech startups here in Leeds as a real kind of a really amazing buzz around the innovation centers at the university and some of the developments that are going on here. But I think that has made it a bit harder. I've had to try a lot harder to find people to kind of help us and support us. Access to talent hasn't been a challenge, actually. Developers and salespeople, and we often retrain people into, into sort of a, a SaaS and software business from other sectors which which works for us um but yeah i do think i do think it's um i miss when i go out to boston and i, I sort of drop into the tech ecosystems in places like boston and other parts of the world you, you do realize that actually um being part of that can be really 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 helpful so i'm looking forward to getting back out to the us soon actually Cool. Tell us a little bit about, um, there's a couple of organizations. You, so you founded an organization called Lean In Leads. Tell us a little bit about what that is. That was a completely selfish endeavor. I, I read a book by Sheryl Sandberg, who's the CEO of Facebook. It was all a book about, you know, female empowerment and self-empowerment and really helping you to kind of, I suppose, manage your own personal kind of self-limiting beliefs actually often it is to be able to help you to achieve your your own personal vision of success whatever that might be and I really loved it because it was about you know empowering women to think about you know what what they could do for themselves as opposed to perhaps seeing the barriers that are in their way and it says at the end of the book hey you know join a circle near you I looked there wasn't one I created one I thought it'd be wonderful to meet with other female CEOs on my doorstep um that went from the first dinner that we had of 20 people, and we now have 900 members, which is just bonkers. Wow. And there's obviously a need to bring that kind of uh, community together to talk about kind of challenging those boundaries in for women in being able to realize their, their own ambitions and trying to understand what's what's causing those limitations. I think that's, that's what really stood out for me is that the there's so many women just wanting to connect, go, hey, you know, I really want to do this, but I this is making me want to not, or I feel held back, or I'm not, I don't know what's stopping me. And just being able to have a safe space to bring in people that have been there and done it to share their stories or to have workshops where people can actually, you know, learn about new skills and or, or change their thinking and approaches to things. So we run a workshop every month and an evening event every month and and really kind of enable that community. So I'm hoping um, a legacy that I'd love to leave is that we've we've, we've we turn Leeds and and Yorkshire into into one of the, the the fastest growing kind of female leadership community in the UK. That would be that would be a wonderful wonderful place to be. Yeah, that's awesome. And then if that wasn't enough, you last year you also founded No Code Lab. So what is, what is that? Yeah, so that was we're a no code platform, so people don't have to write a line of code to deployers or users. And I was just really interested that this seemed to be a community that was burgeoning in the US, but nobody was talking about it here in the UK. And I was kind of frustrated because I thought, God, this makes so much sense. It really kind of 
reduces the barriers to entry for people getting into technology. That's great for diversity. That's brilliant for, you know, uh, helping to improve the skills pipeline because we don't need everyone to have done, you know, technical degrees and we don't need people to have to have the funds to support an education to do these roles. So this is brilliant. This is such an enabler for the industry to build amazing tech using no-code tools. And I just wanted to bring that conversation to the UK and start to kind of lead that and bring a community together. So we've done white papers for the national data strategy, got involved in government, um, worked with people like Tech UK um, on this agenda, as well as gathering a whole load of no-code technology companies here in the UK and overseas to talk about this and how this is a real kind of interesting wave and movement for innovation and uh, enabling a really kind of wider pool of talent into the tech sector, which we need. And I would love to see a much more diverse representation across tech. You know, we're still at 17% after 10 years of women in technology roles, which is a shame Mm. for such a new industry that we've not changed that needle in 17 years. So I'm really hoping this can can be a a part of that. Um, And plus it's, you know, really great. People can spin up a product in days and an MVP in hours using no-code tools and people can realize their ideas for tech innovation in whatever problem they're solving without having to be a developer. Like it's, um, it's great. It's a great movement. So yeah, we run events and we try and bring the community together and, and, and basically input into conversations and dialogue at a national and local level. Awesome. Do, do you know Ben Tossel who runs Makeapad? I've heard of Makeapad. I don't know Ben. So yeah, I mean, Makeapad is pretty popular here in the U.S., but like he's running that out of like, I think he's in Milton Keynes. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah. I should introduce you guys. <laughs> like both in the no code. You should. Do you know what? I've literally written down. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Great. So we should wrap up. Let's get on to the, the lightning round. I'm going to ask you uh, seven quick fire questions. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. Ready to go? I am. Yes. All right. <laughs> What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Fail fast with a smile on your face. <laughs> smile on your face. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Crossing the Chasm, but also Who Moved My Cheese? Oh, yeah. I haven't come across that book for a long time. Good yeah. change book. Good change book. Very old one, but it's a goodie. Yeah. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Uh, sticking at it. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Urgent Important Matrix by Eisenhower from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I use it every day and I have a grid that I write on and it helps me to keep focused on what really is important because things that are important are seldomly urgent and vice versa. Things that are urgent are seldomly important. So, What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Uh, I love to paint. Uh, I love the segue of art and tech. Um, I think developers are basically artists of code. And I'd love to bring developers together with artists in some kind of crazy mashup of innovation and see where it takes us. So I think it'd be awesome. Awesome. Uh, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um, I uh, was once on an album in a choir for Emmerdale Farms. Um, <laughs> Emmerdale Farm is a, a, a program here in Yorkshire for those of you that are not from the UK. But a, a very well, uh, a very well loved program here, and I was, yeah, I was on the, I was in the choir and on the front cover of a, an LP vinyl, very long time ago, singing in the choir. Oh my gosh! 
I, I remember watching Emmerdale when I was in the, in, I think back in the 90s. It's still running around, right? Is it, is it still- oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and half of the cast seems to go to, parents seem to go to my kids' school as well, which I think it's quite funny. I don't know any of them anymore because I don't watch it, but apparently everybody else does. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Uh, I, I'm a girls football coach and I absolutely live for my weekends with the girls doing football coaching and taking them to various games and just seeing her just seeing their joy really of working together as a team they're sort of under 16s now so I'm I may only have a year left with them but um, they're an amazing group and they inspire me every day love it all right so if people want to find out more about pan intelligence they go to panintelligence.com and uh, if people want to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do that I've talked a lot about LinkedIn today, so it'd be hard not to say LinkedIn. So <laughs> fortunately, um, Zandra Moore is a relatively unusual name. And if you just type that into LinkedIn, you'll find me. Um, same for Twitter, actually. If you just type Zandra Moore in, I'm, I'm at Zandra Moore. So yeah, I use those social channels, reach out, say hi, send me a message. Uh, I'll always reply. I, I do like that kind of personal. So it's about a lot of personalization today. So a bit of personal outreach um, and I'll be absolutely sure to reply and connect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me today, Zandra. And I, I love how you've been able to not only build this business, but in many ways do it on your own terms from, you know, putting the pin in the map and drawing the circle through to everything else that, you know, you're kind of making things happen in, in Leeds. So thanks for sharing that. And I uh, wish you and the team the best of success. Thanks, Simon. All the best. Cheers.